Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener. We can begin. Do you want to carry on? Yeah, let's let's <laughs> keep going, Martin. <laughs> it started off so well. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to episode fifteen. Weights and measures. We are Marna Wally from ZOS Development in IBM Lovely Poughkeepsie, New York. And Martin Packer, who didn't fluff the opening lines. <laughs> so we hope you all had a good summer break, and we're back from the break now. Yeah, but you know what, Martin? For some people, it was not summer, it was winter, and I was there for it in the Southern Hemisphere. Tell me more. All right, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Melbourne, Australia for the IBM Systems Symposium, a wonderful event. Got to see a lot of good Z folks that I know down there, and I got to enjoy the lovely winter time, which was really nice. Also, I went to Share in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm sure people have heard about that one. That was the week of August 7th, so I've been traveling a lot since our, our break, our summer slash winter break. So I've been to lots of places, if you count, on the phone, but unfortunately I've not been anywhere physically, but I intend to correct that soon. All right, so it's called Weights and Measures, episode 15. Why is it called that? Because I said so. But Yeah, and but I don't seriously. argue with you on the title because I can't come up with a better one. <laughs> but what made me say it, right. In, so in my imagination, it's all about the performance topic, which is about LPAR weights and stuff associated with them. So we looked for a really bad pun title, and we've got one, Weights and Measures. And now it's time for our mainframe topic. And as you heard just now, we have a guest. And this episode's guest is Barry Lichtenstein. So tell us about yourself, Barry. Hi, Martin. Barry Lichtenstein from Poughkeepsie IBM. I had worked uh, for many years with the LE folks in the C runtime and then for many years after that on the binder. And now I'm a member of the ZOS Unix file system team. Barry, and they are lucky to have you. I know you're an excellent programmer and we're very happy to have you here. But what I really wanted to talk about and have you come on um, the podcast is you told me about a line item that I didn't even know existed in 2.3. It kind of went under the radar and that's why we want to put it in the podcast. And I think it has probably one of the longest line item titles that I've ever seen. It's called Automatically Unmounting Unused Version Root File Systems in a Shared File System. So, you know, tell us about this thing. It went under the radar and it sounds really cool. I want to use it. What is this thing? And what are you going to call it for short? Sure. Unmount Version File System. Okay, let's go with that. And, and uh, so the idea here is that you kind of you kind of arm the system to unmount the version file system when it's no longer being used by any file system in the Sysplex. This came actually from, there were a couple of customer requirements. Uh, specifically, we had an RFE 47549, automatic disposal of USS version root was the name of it, actually. Well, that's pretty good. So because I can think of as a system programmer that I want to deploy new releases or new um, environments, and yet if I can't get that version root that was prior being used, I, I can't get it off. I think that's that's probably what this whole function does, right? That's right. Yeah, the idea is that we have these version file systems that after uh, a rolling IPL of service, uh, you are no longer using it or the system programmer thinks, you know, it's not being used anymore. But you can have applications that have 
been using files in the file system, and so until they're done, until everything closes and the in-use count goes to zero, the file system has to stay mounted. So this this helps to automatically get them unmounted when it's appropriate to do so. And just so I can scope this correctly, are you talking about just the version root file system? Yeah, this only works for the uh, version file system, we say. does it, And so it's only in a Sysplex environment, and therefore the, the version file system, it doesn't work for any other file systems. You know, it's kind of funny. I'm, I'm wondering why we didn't think about this when we were first introducing shared file system environment, but I guess better late than never, right? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, tell us the value above it. What, where do you see customers using it? I know that there are some customer requirements, but what do you think that we could get a whole lot of value of it, uh, given that you are intimately involved with this function? Yeah, well, the idea is this is really a, a usability thing for the system programmer because uh, before, because again, if they, let's say you did a rolling IPL and now you no longer are using this version file system, which is now the prior version file system, um, it's no longer a version file system on any of your systems in the sysplex. So you go off and you say, well, okay, I'm going to unmount this. And unmount comes back and says, no, sorry, can't unmount this. It's still in use. So when do you do that? Uh, you don't know when to do it. And, and you have to go around to all of your systems in the sysplex and do this unmounting. So uh, it, gets, it gets kind of tedious. Uh, with this support, you don't have to do anything but turn on the unmount setting and the system determines when the file system is no longer in use and just goes off and magically unmounts it. So you don't end up with all this clutter of unused uh, version file systems over time. It also sounds to me like it gives you a chance to avoid making mistakes. Uh, well, I don't think you know there, there's any harm if you try to unmount it you know, unless you tried to force unmount it. If you thought you knew better and, and went to force the unmount and, and there really was somebody still using it, that, that would certainly be a bad thing. So Barry, you said something about unmounting configuration setting. Is that a BPX PRM uh, new statement I've got? Yes, well, it's an existing statement. There's a version statement already that, that identifies the version file system. And so there's a new second keyword on there that is either unmount or no unmount, which is of course the default. And then along with that is a set OMVS, an extension to set OMVS version, which likewise you can say uh, unmount now. Yeah, you read my mind. If you're going to, you know, have a set command, you or a BPX PRM thing, my next question was going to be, do you have a set command? And you have a display command, I certainly hope, right? Yes, the DOMVS uh, options will show you the setting on that system. And if you want to see that you have turned on this attribute to automatically unmount the version file system for a particular file system, you do uh, DOMVSF or you can use uh, modify BPXO init file sys equals display. Those will both show you the, and you'll see the string in, in all uppercase version underscore auto underscore unmount uh, wow. underneath that file system. That tells you that it's as I say, armed for being unmounted when it's appropriate to do so. Right. And so, so I just want to get back to that word automatic, right? Automatic means when nobody in the shared file system is using this version root file system, it's going to come off. That's what, that, that's what automatic means. <laughs> that's right. So what Unix will be doing is it will be periodically looking at all the version file systems, just the version file systems, as we said before, 
And when it sees that a particular file system that had been a version file system is no longer a version file system on any of the systems in the sysplex, and it's no longer in use, at least at the root level, then it goes off and tries to unmount. And of course, that unmounting means unmounting all of the children file systems uh, underneath it and, and then working its way up until it can finally unmount the, the root, the root, the version uh, itself, which again is the, you know, why this is tedious otherwise uh, to do manually. And so, and it will actually try doing that several times because, you know, just in case there is, for instance, maybe at the root level, it's not in use, but as we drill down and start unmounting children file systems, maybe one of the other file systems underneath there is, is still in use. Yeah, excellent. Okay, that's cool. All right, um, so we've got that. Any Anything I should be aware of if I'm going to be using this, if I'm going uh, to implement it? Uh, let me just go back because we, we, we touched on this a little bit, and we've said even when I introduced the requirement for this, we said version root. That, that's, a, that's a term that was not intended to be used. So just to be clear, we call this the version file system. It is the root file system when you're talking about a sysplex environment. And the reason they call it version file system instead of root file system was to avoid confusion with the term sysplex root, but the correct term that we're supposed to use for this is version file system. So this is- You know, that's funny because I continue to use the term version root file system in a shared file system environment as, you know, and I'm very clear that it's not the sysplex root, it is right. the version root, but I'm gonna have to probably get my mind around now just calling it version file system and not version root file system anymore. Yeah, I'm afraid the documentation has some instances of each and we, we need to clean that up. Version file system was. Yeah. Um, do uh, I need to be at 2.3 across the sysplex in order for to use this function? Yes, you do. You have to be at 2.3 for every system in the sysplex. So what we suggest, uh, so there's there's no toleration uh, for the unmount keyword on version. So if you have a shared Parmline member, you can't just throw the unmount new keyword on there. So what we recommend that you do is once you get all of your systems up to the 2.3 level, then you would change your Parmline member for all of your systems. And then you could go ahead and then use the set space OMVS command to activate the unmount setting or, or set OMVS. Now, when you use set OMVS for the current version file system and set it to unmount, that both sets the unmount option on that system, but it but it also broadcasts it to all the other systems. So, so that way you, you do get the unmount setting version auto unmount setting on that particular version file system. And then of course, once you're at 2.3, then every, everything is good. And as you apply service and service in new version file systems, everything just works with this new support. Nice. So Martin, you got any questions from a performance point of view or from of course an SMF point of view because that's your area. Yeah, so I'm just wondering if we would see some footprints in the sand um, when the unmounts happen. So SMF92 is what I associate with file system, but I don't really know a huge amount about it. I'm just wondering whether we would get an, something to do with an unmount event in, in SMF92. That's a really good question, Martin, and I don't know the answer. I'm sure whatever normally would happen with an unmount should happen 
with this, but I, I don't know. There are, of course, there are messages that come out as, as this processing is going on that it's attempting to do the unmounts, and those only show up on the uh, hard copy log, but I don't know about SMF records that are cut for unmounting in general. Perhaps this is one for the listeners to figure out and tell us. And the companion question I have is, so you mentioned SETO MVS just now, and I wonder if SETO MVS commands would show up in SMF90, which is the uh, SMF record type for, I believe, when uh, commands are issued. Not that that's encyclopedic or anything. Yeah, again, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. I'm actually a relatively new member of the USS file system team, so some of those things I just don't know about. I'll stick my big nose in the SMF manual sometime soon and see what I find. Yeah, Martin, I can't. This is me. I'm just going to reckon here. I'm going to guess out that I, I would really think that it just um, the SMF records it cuts are similar to what have or have already been cut for set OMVSs and for run mounts. I'm guessing that. I can't see why it would be otherwise. So right, right. There is one other thing I can throw in there that there's uh, there there's an existing USS Parmlib health check, and so that now looks at the version unmount setting as well, and so it's going to compare the option on the system from, you know, from from when you did the set OMVS against the Parmlib, right? It's not actually looking at the version auto unmount attribute of the version file system. It's just making sure that your Parm Live and the option on that system are in sync. You know, Barry, I'm so glad you brought that up because that is one of my absolutely favorite health checks is it's one of the health checks of the few of them that we have that will actually compare your current settings versus what you've put in Parm Live so you don't regress yourself. I wish that other components would have such a health check. So I'm so glad that you added the function into that health check for this particular function and just generally that you have that health check in general. I love oh, it. Great. That's I great love that yeah, that's that's exactly what it's it's supposed to do, especially as you're sort of rolling this in with the all systems being a two three requirement. You you want to make sure that you don't have that regression situation. Yeah, I have my own uh, list of components I wish would do exactly what OMVS does with that health check and setting. So I love it. Oh, love great. it. All right. So anything, any last minute items you want to add there, Barry or Martin? I think that's all I have on this one, Marna. All right. So, so thank you very much, Barry, for taking us through this. This is an area that I, I will admit to not being terribly familiar with, but it, it's certainly an interesting one. Oh, you're very welcome, Martin. Marna, very glad to be here. Okay, Martin, now we've come to the part in our podcast where we talk about performance. Uh, I understand that today's performance topic is we're going to talk about weights and online engines. Otherwise known as Martin bumbling around with customer data yet again and learning something in the process. And this was actually from a real customer engagement that I learned something that I want to share with you so you don't have to bumble around and make mistakes like I did. Yeah, but weights and NELPAR measurements and stuff, isn't this topic originally really simple? Well, yes, PRISM once was, but let's start in the middle, which seems as good a place as any to begin. All right, I'm going to start in the middle. I'm going to guess that that's the Intelligent Resource Director, otherwise known as IRD. Yes, let's not be the podcast that spoon feeds people. There are plenty of those around. Uh, so IRD, yes, let's call it IRD for short. So IRD changed the way PRISM worked fairly fundamentally because it introduced a couple of concepts, actually more than two, but two of relevance here. One was dynamic weight adjustment, and the other one was online logical engine management. So it would 
shift weights between LPARs in what's known as an LPAR cluster, which is the intersection of a cisplex and a particular physical machine. So weight management, and it would also vary on and offline logical engines. So that's called logical engine management. So it created some dynamism. And actually the instrumentation in RMF really helped with this because on the logical engine side, it would tell you how long an engine had been online for. This is the so-called online time. And on the weight management side, it would, in addition to the initial weight, which is the one we always had, it would now tell you the minimum and maximum weights that IRD had set for the LPAR in the RMF interval. So it introduced some level of support for understanding what was going on when things were changed by IRD. So we're talking about PRISM, but didn't Hyperdispatch change all this when it came about? Yes, yes, it did. So that's the next logical step was uh, Hyperdispatch, which basically took away one concept but kept the other. So it took away logical engine management, but it kept IRD's weight management. So you can still do IRD these days, but it just doesn't vary engines on and offline. Now, Hyperdispatch actually replaced logical engine management for a good, very good reason. It did logical engine management, but better. So the concept of engines being varied on and offline by Hyperdispatch went away and was replaced with the idea of parking. So they are still online, even if they're parked. It's just that no work is directed to a parked logical engine. Um, it also did some other stuff as well, which made where work was dispatched really much more clever. So, for example, affinity nodes, which are logical engines to which are directed subsets of the work in work queues. That, that sort of sophistication was introduced with hyperdispatch. Now, it still respected the ARD weight management, as I say. And it introduced yet more instrumentation just to make life fun for us. So, for example, alongside the existing online time, we have parked time, which is how long a logical engine is actually parked for during the RMF interval. And it actually refined the instrumentation on the weight side as well. So we now have what are called vertical weights recorded in RMF by engine. Uh, so that's good, clean fun. So the data model evolved, as you'd expect. All right, so let's back go back to your customer situation. What was the customer situation that got you thinking about this? Well, this, this to my mind was a little strange, but maybe there's going to be a bunch of customers who scream at me, you idiot, this is not strange, we do this too. But they did their own version, it seems, of IRD and hyperdispatch, somewhat manually or at least through automation. So... so they were varying the numbers of logical engines online and they were also varying the weights be uh, between the LPARs, but they weren't doing it using IRD. So the interesting thing here is, is my code actually got this hopelessly wrong. And the reason is because I expect weights to change through the IRD field. So the IRD max and min weights fields that I mentioned just now, I would expect to change as the weights changed. But actually, they were all zero. They didn't change at all. That The point here was you can't rely on the IRD instrumentation to tell you when weights change. You have to, if you're not using IRD, you have to look at the initial weight, so-called. Now, the trouble with this is initial is a poor name now because it's initial since you last changed it. 
So that that was a touch confusing. Yeah, that is a little confusing, and I'm sticking in my head that I'm going to go look that up after the the podcast to see what the new definition of initial really might be today. So, you know, we've got questions about what you've just talked about. So why would I manually change these weights and not let IRD do it? That's a very good question. And all I can think about here is there is something else in the customer's mind that causes them to want to change the weights. Bearing in mind that what makes IRD choose to change the weights is workload manager, WLM, goal attainment. So maybe there's some other reasons for wanting to change the weights that IRD is never going to do for you. Yeah, that's possible. Okay, now the other thing is, why would one change the online engines when I've got Hyper's Dispatch that parks and unpark just fine? Yeah, that's a very good question too. And, and again, I, I think there might be some subtlety in terms of how Hyper Dispatch behaves and Prism assigns logicals to physicals. But I have to say, people really shouldn't be playing sophisticated games, trying to second guess how Z13 or Z14 assign logicals to physicals. They should design their LPARs properly with a few things like maybe an LPAR should fit inside one drawer in, in, in Z13, Z14 terms. Uh, but there might be something subtle there. Uh, but I would say that's generally something not to get too sophisticated about. And remember, by the way, that Hyper Dispatch will change its assignments of vertical high, medium and low in response to the weights that IRD sets. So maybe this one's just plain not understanding that Hyper Dispatch would do that. And actually, there's a third question, which is really for you, dear listener. On the off chance you have a view about this. So I don't know how the customer physically did this. So I don't know how they dynamically adjusted the weights. I know how you can vary engines on and offline. That's an operator command, right? But but I, I don't know how people would physically, mechanically do this. So that's a question for customers, I think. Yeah, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, they could also they could do the command through the HMC, but they also might be using something in BCPII today. It's become very popular. People are writing a lot of BCPII programs to do a lot of their HMC controls. Yes, and I'm guessing that most products that could automate this sort of thing would do it through BCPII rather than web scraping or whatever it is, the HMC itself. But if you, dear listener, have a view as to why you might be doing some of this stuff, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And actually, if you have a view as to what tooling you might use, even if it's homegrown automation, uh, I'd love to learn about that as well. But the key learning point about, about this is just when you think you've got uh, your analysis code responding to dynamically changing things, along comes a whole nother way of dynamically changing things. So who is to say what dynamically actually re really means? And the, and the point is you have to be on your toes as always about the instrumentation. Now we're going to get into our topics topic. Martin, what do you got? Well, I'm going to call this video kill the radio star question mark. We seem to like titles of things with question marks in, don't we? <laughs> Otherwise known as, don't give up the day job. But you know, you and I both know that podcasting is not your day job, Martin. Uh, shh, don't tell anybody. So I started recently trying something else that's new, which was posting screencasts to YouTube. 
uh, by the way, when I say something else that's new, it's new to me. It's not new to the world. I freely acknowledge that. Now, anything that's uh, new to you is definitely brand new to me. So what is this thing called a screencast? Well, the one thing it isn't is a video blog or podcast. And the distinction I'm going to make here is you don't get to see me in this. Unfortunately, you still get to hear me. But, you know, to start doing videos where you see me, I'd actually have to put on some good clothes and I would actually have to have some kind of um, backdrop to it. And, and that just becomes way too cumbersome. And frankly, I can't be bothered. Yes, you're worth it, but I'm still not going to do it. So that's what it isn't. What it is, in fact, in my interpretation, is me talking over some screenshots of stuff or slides. Uh, in my case, slides mostly charts right so that's really what I see it as is is you hear me talking about something I'm showing you so you've got a couple of these screencasts on YouTube what are what are yours about so what I've chosen to do really is to take some graphs of mine that are hot off the press so those are ones that I've either just developed and I'm feeling particularly smug about or they're ones that fell out of a study and they actually interested me, amused me, make a point I want to make. So hopefully vaguely educational, not just showing off my latest code. Hmm. OK, so so why? Why are you doing screencasts? Well, I'd like to believe I've got something to teach people. So we we'd have devise the graphing we have to look at certain topics in a particular way that we think is useful. So hopefully people will learn something about looking at, at data. And actually the other thing is hopefully you'll get a sense of the excitement I feel when I look at data. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that because sometimes when we're talking about data, it's easier if you just show me what you have and take your mouse and move it around in the section you're talking about. That really does teach me something so I like that so I could just hand wave, you know I could just hand wave all day and, and talk, talk about stuff without showing you anything and it's much easier just to show you stuff right and your hand waving doesn't uh, come through to me very well when we're we're on different uh, continents so how do you do this how do you do a screencast right so the, the way I do it bearing in mind I'm showing you graphs is firstly I make a set of slides or images uh, typically in slide format and sometimes, and I've been experimenting with this, I have fly-in annotations. So I'm trying to point you at a particular thing on the, on the graph. So I will try and uh, annotate it. Having done that, and that really follows some kind of vague storyboard, although as usual, I'm not good at sticking to the script, uh, even when it's just my own script. Um, I will then record. So I will use a built-in screen recorder where I'm actually displaying the graphs, the charts, the tables, whatever they might be. But it actually does sound as well. Yeah, so I think in my terminology, what I think you just I just heard you say is that in, let's say, for instance, PowerPoint, I record my slides and talk on PowerPoint, right? Exactly. And in fact, okay. lots of the time it is PowerPoint that, okay. I, that I'm doing this with. Although I might make some of the diagrams and stuff elsewhere, it really is PowerPoint, is, is the vehicle for doing doing that okay my gosh even I can do that okay if I can do it anyone can do it right it's, it's actually not not difficult at all actually and I'd like to encourage people to think that so then having got something raw there's a process of editing well actually to start off with I was I was just bowled over to be able to record something and put it out so I really wasn't doing any editing 
And then I got to the point where I went, I probably do want proper fade outs and stuff like that. So I was editing the video and the audio as one item. And then I moved to splitting the audio out into a separate stream, cleaning it up using Audacity, which is what we actually use for cleaning up and editing podcasts, and then reuniting the audio with, with the video. And that got a lot better. So there's quite a lot of post-production one could do. And I've just got hold of a copy of Camtasia, which is a premium product for doing the editing. No, I didn't pay for it myself. But anyway, it has a lot of promise and I hope to play with that really soon um, in future recordings. So basically the process is you storyboard it a little bit, you make some slides, you record yourself talking to those slides, then you do some editing and then you publish up, up on YouTube. Yeah, so how's it gone? Well, to be honest, the reception hasn't exactly been brilliant. I'm not not particularly disappointed, but it's not caught the world on fire. But I think I've managed to get some good points across by doing it. And I haven't had that many downloads, but then to be honest, I haven't really sought much publicity. I've just mentioned it on Twitter a few times and in in one blog post. Yeah, well, you pointed me to it and I watched it and I, I thought it was pretty cool and I, I liked it, so you got one view from me. Well, and somebody else I know said she really liked it too, so I've got two loyal listeners, viewers, whatever you, whatever the, the recipient of the screencast is called, probably. Well, Martin, I didn't say I was loyal. I just said I, I watched it after you told me about it. <laughs> well, you've, been, you've been loyal so far until you're not. <laughs> I'm loyal and helping you. How's that? <laughs> That's very good. Teamwork. Um, so, you know, the, the other thing that is slightly bothersome to me is this, that, that part of this is to try and imbue, as I say, a sense of excitement that I get when I look at data. And I think by the time you've storyboarded it and built the screencast, then some of that excitement has, has gone. Because, I, you know, I really am very excited every time I see new data with something interesting in, and there's almost always something interesting in the set of data from a customer. But, you know, on the other hand, I've learned a lot about the process of making a screencast. And no, I'm not going to offer to mentor anybody. I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but it's been an interesting learning curve. And so, you know, I intend to keep going with this. And there's been a bit of a summer hiatus. So it's been a month since I did the last one. But I intend to start doing some more. And I've got plenty of material to do it, actually. And and if you are interested, based on this topic, I think it'd take you under an hour to catch up. So I, I intend to keep going, you know. You know, you talked about having ideas for material. I've got a lot of ideas for material because a lot of the times when I talk about ZOSMF stuff or other visual information, I really would like to point out where it is and kind of describe where it is because it's awful hard to do in some sort of thing that's very graphical, like you said. And I think one of the nice things about this is is your audience could be anybody, actually. It could be internal in your installation or it could be the whole world however few people in, in your world actually want to see this stuff. So, so I think it has general utility, which is one of the reasons why I included it in this, in this podcast. Uh, and yes, I, I'm going to be stockpiling this sort of material because maybe one day I'll look back on it and I'll have covered all the ground of what I wanted to transfer in skill terms. So it's been fun doing this, uh, but I really don't think that video killed the so-called radio star. And now as we close out the show, of course, it's time for customer requirements.
So Martin, in this section where we're talking about customer requirements, I did want to mention also the requirement that Barry had mentioned on, on why they did the automatic unmounting of the unused version file system. I'm going to say that right. So that was requirement number 47549, and the actual title of it was automatic disposal of USS version root, where disposal means unmount here. So as you know, that's been delivered, and that's in ZOS 2.3. All right. And how old is that requirement? Um, it 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 has had some birthdays. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> a well seasoned requirement, and now we delivered. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I I did have another requirement that has not been delivered, and actually kind of perked me up a little bit. Its status is open. It was just opened in May, so it's not very old. May twenty seventeen, and it's requirement number nine seven one zero one. The title is make slash dev slash random available on ZOS without an ICSF dependency. As you might know in ZOS 2.2, I believe it was, we had the dependency on crypto for dev random, which is, ugh, was one of Marna's fire items. So let me read very quickly what the description is because it actually is very well written. Slash dev slash random is a special file that serves as a pseudo random number generator source for applications. On ZOS, this special file is only produced or provided if ICSF is started. If ICSF is not available, we need to resort to some other source of random numbers, which will have to be implemented within applications. Gasp, right? Goal here is to make dev random available on ZOS independent of whether ICSF is available or not. So the reason why this caught my eyes is a couple of things. First of all is that that was a major migration action in 2.2 to have crypto up for DevRandom. Um, and this requirement is to remove that migration action if it is implemented. And the other thing is bringing up a little pet peeve of mine is that we are needing crypto on each and every ZOS LPAR that comes up. And it's not just for DevRandom. We're seeing it on a long list of reasons why crypto needs to be started up. So I've been on a little bit of a bandwagon lately saying get crypto up and running on every single system. And this is, uh, DevRandom was just another thing on that list. But this requirement actually had another aspect to it is that we would have to permit each user that wanted to use DevRandom to use those crypto services, which then brought in a little bit more of a complicated function is that I would have to know who was using DevRandom to make sure that I gave them access to use it. Now, this is not a unique thing with DevRandom or even in Unix. We still need to have users have access to crypto for many other reasons. But this was an interesting requirement because it was, uh, you know, wanting to help with perhaps even porting of applications that use DevRandom and that newly use it. So a couple of interesting things going on here. The status is open. And if you have an opinion on it, it would, might be good to go into RFE and, and vote and comment on it. So my only comment on this is that random number generators uh, vary in quality, vary in distribution of, of the numbers and randomness and, and all that stuff. So one would hope that the fallback would have a random number generation pattern that was good enough. That's the only thing I, I would say. And presumably it would be pretty much the same algorithm just implemented differently. So let's hope so if we do it. Yeah. I'm hoping good enough for those Unix people also are good enough for our COS people as well. So <laughs> Good enough for Monte Carlo simulation and the like. There you go. 
All right. So out and about, places we expect to be speaking. Martin, you're going to a very cool place. Wish I was going there. Never been. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be in the middle of Italy um, the week of the 2nd of August. At least that's the plan right now, which I'm really, really looking forward to. And then I have this very silly notion, perhaps, of driving from the middle of Italy to Munich for the week of the 9th of October. Actually, I'll have done it in reverse to get to the customer, because the week of the 9th of October is, I have no idea what we call it, but let's just call it uh, ZTech University, something, something like that. Maybe you know the name. I, I think that's probably pretty much close to it. But you didn't mention, you know, that middle of Italy part you're going to be at that I haven't been there. That's Florence. I really would like to go there. I was trying to be discreet because I'm actually going to see a customer. But anyway. Well, still, if I'm anywhere near Florence, I'm going to Florence because I've never been there. Looks good. All right. So that'll be great. We'll actually see each other in person in Munich. Maybe we can actually get a photograph and, and put it up. And lift a few beers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was in, I'm going to Johannesburg, actually, the week of September 11th, and I'm looking very much forward to going there. It'll be my third time there, and I really like seeing my ZOS buddies down there. Really looking forward to the Johannesburg trip. And I think that is called, and I'm hoping I get the name right, uh, IBM Systems Symposium, and there'll be Z there. So come to see us in Joburg if you're a South African person. And my other trip is one of my favorite trips I love to take, mostly because I love pizza. And that is I'm going to Chicagoland on September 26th and 27th for a couple of uh, regional customer briefings. If you're in the Chicagoland area, mark your calendar, 26th and 27th for pizza and talk, but mostly pizza. So, so I've only been to Chicagoland twice this year, and both times I utterly failed to get pizza, I'm afraid. All right, you that's an utter failure. You you can't go to Chicago without pizza. That's why you go there. <laughs> <laughs> Not the only reason, but never mind. We'll let that one pass. Oh, that's secondary. Secondary. Yeah, seeing customers, absolutely secondary to pizza, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I've got my priorities right. Anyway, so we welcome feedback. Yes, uh, we are particularly interested in what you'd like us to discuss because otherwise me and Martin will just sit down and we'll talk about whatever we want to. So tell us what you want to hear. So in particular, you get a chance, as, as we've indicated, to see us in Munich and to discuss things you want to see, things you like about the podcast, things you don't. And we assume in particular we're actually going to be doing a poster session with a bit of luck because we're told there's some competition this year for poster sessions. By the way, you too, if you're going, should stick in a poster session. And we'll, we'll fight you for a spot on, on the floor. <laughs> We will. And actually, that'll be good because we'll have to be in the same place at the same time if we're both doing a poster together. So it's usually so crazy busy in Munich. So it'll be good that we actually will have assigned time to do it. So speaking of poster sessions, I did a poster session in Melbourne. It was the highest elevation poster session I've done in my life. 88th or 89th floor, tallest building in the Southern Hemisphere. And it, it went really well. Got to talk to some folks. It was great. So did you get high anxiety? Not at all, but I did look out the window and I didn't stand too close to it, but I did put my camera next to the window so that I could look at it later from my camera, so maybe a little bit, but not too much. So, so you do realize that that was a cultural reference, don't you? Yes, I am a Mel Brooks fan. I get Excellent. that. Are you, Excellent. Are you saying that Mel Brooks is cultural? That's how you're, you're classified. With, with a capital K, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and the we Germans also would like that they spell yeah. it with a k don't they yeah. uh, and we did it in munich last year as well and that, that was quite fun doing that that first poster session 
Yeah, I loved it. It's a great fun. That Munich poster session is, is just great. All right, so now we're going to talk about our blog, Martin. Well, I'm falling off my I'm, well, I'm falling off my chair in the amazement because number one, I haven't got anything to report on my blog, but drum roll, Mana's got one. I actually do. This is the probably the only time where I have done a blog uh, in the whole summer slash winter, and you have not. So I had a, a wonderful, happy blog uh, pen that I've been waiting to put a while out on, and I finally could do it on the announced day of July 17th, 2017. Is It's titled Some Handy ZOS, Version 2.3 and Z14 Information. Which is a lovely snappy title. Yeah, I know. My, my titles are just really boring. I'm going to have to outsource the, my blog titles to you. Mm. Mm. Not so sure about that. <laughs> How to contact us. All right. So as you guys might know on Twitter, I am M. Wally. That's M-W-A-L-L-E. And my email is mwally, M-W-A-L-L-E, at us.ibm.com. And I'm martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com for email and martin packer on Twitter. So it goes. <laughs>